wants to be saved should above all cling to the lowercase c, Catholic faith. This is Catholic in the sense of the universal church, the Roman Catholic church did not exist yet at that time. Whoever does not guard it wholly and inviolably will without a doubt perish eternally, is what it says. It says, now this is the Catholic, the universal faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. Again, that's from the Athanasian Creed in the 5th and 6th century. It says, one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Whoever does not confess this faces eternal peril. Now, friends, I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, We are not saved by our cognitive grasp of things, by our our intellectual uh, understanding, information, etc. We're saved by Jesus Christ. What this does reveal, though, is that Christians in the 5th and 6th century, and probably before that, even in the 4th, thought it was essential to grasp as accurately as humanly possible the nature of God. They thought that grasping the nature of God as accurately as possible was beneficial in the Christian life, resulted in adequate, effective ministry, and they put it even stronger. They thought to be saved, one had to believe X, Y, and Z about the Trinity. There's another prominent author, he was a a CMA pastor for a while, a big influence in my early Christian life. His name is A.W. Tozer. Uh, And Tozer wrote a book in the 60s called The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is what Tozer says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is either pure or base, good or bad, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Were we able to extract from a man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict, he says, with certainty, the spiritual future of that man. That our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. This sounds a little bit like the Athanasian Creed. Friends, there is so much that I could say about the Trinity. Everything that I say wouldn't get even close to what's really going on in the essence of God, but since many of you likely haven't read the Athanasian Creed, perhaps the writings of Irenaeus, Tertullian, Augustine, Church Fathers writing on the Trinity, this morning I want to speak in general terms about the Trinity and why I think it matters for the Christian life. So that, friends, is my plan for today, Trinity Sunday, but before we go any further with that, let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are gathered here to worship you, first and foremost, Lord. 
Thank you for shedding light, enough light that we might walk but a few steps with you, maybe not enough light to know the the end of the story, to know every detail from now until then, but enough light to trust you, to love you, to serve you. Lord, we pray that you this morning would illuminate our hearts, that you would teach us about yourself, but not for mere academic curiosity, but only so that we might better live for you in this world. Be with us as we study some key texts and think about the Trinity and what it means for us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, for the very first time in my life, um, I'll be basing a sermon on two texts, two texts, at least from different books. I've preached on two texts in the same book. And so, the lectionary, the last two readings it provides for us for Trinity Sunday are Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like, but we're going to be reading one and then the other. And so for that reason, I will have it projected on screen. And so I'll start with Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and 2 Corinthians 13, both in the ESV. I invite you now, friends, to stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> start with Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You may be seated. So what we have here, friends, is what's commonly called the Great Commission in the Gospel of Matthew. The Great Commission. These are the last words that Jesus would speak to his disciples before ascending into heaven. This is the, the mission, the task that they were to carry out in his absence. The second reading comes from an epistle, not a gospel, and it's the end of Paul's letter, what we call 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul had a lot of dealings with the church at Corinth. This probably was his third letter to the church at Corinth. And there's a lot of division and, and contention in the, in the church, and so he's urging them toward unity. Although these passages are in different places in the New Testament, by different authors, in different genres, 
The common denominator, if you want to call it that, is the mention of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is actually extremely rare to find in biblical literature. It's extremely rare. Now, at the risk of blowing your minds or probably causing controversy, uh, I'd like to read a quote by Emil Bruner, who is a Swiss theologian, very prominent. Bruner writes that the doctrine of the Trinity is not itself biblical. That's what he says. His words, not mine. What he means is that in Scripture, we don't see explicitly and overtly an explanation of the triunity of God. We don't see the word Trinity anywhere in English versions or in Greek. And we don't see any author taking pains to, over the course of several paragraphs, describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the fact that there are three persons but one essence. We don't see that. There are, however, two verses that seem especially open to a Trinitarian interpretation. And those two verses are Matthew 28, 19, and 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Now, some of you may say, whoa, 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 Jonah, there's a third. We just read it this morning, Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image, right? The us is the Trinity. Now, I will say that some early church fathers read Genesis that way, and the, the, the method of interpretation in the early church was often very creative and allegorical, but that, that interpretation's there. But I actually had to do a paper in a Genesis course on that phrase, and I read all the modern commentaries, and nearly every Old Testament scholar, conservative and liberal, friends, doesn't think that's what the us means. It's possible, and you can ask me more after, but it seems like our best options are Matthew 28, 19, and 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So those are the texts that I'd like to focus on this morning. We used a book last year in a course called Theology of the Basics, a book by Alistair McGrath, uh, and there are about five to eight of you in that, in that year-long course, and it was great to just uh, study the landscape of Christian theology but McGrath writes about the Trinity in one of the chapters, and he is just very clear and balanced in his discussion. And this is what he writes, especially in relation to those verses. He says, The ultimate grounds of the doctrine of the Trinity do not lie in these two verses. Rather, the foundations of the doctrine are found in the overall pattern of divine activity to which the Christian scriptures bear witness. Overall pattern, friends. And I think this is exactly what Bruner would say. Even though the, the Bible doesn't explicitly use the word Trinity or devote an entire book to describing it, if you read the Bible on its own terms, according to its genre, the units of meaning, and if you try to discern a thread, a common thread in the various testimonials that we see in Scripture, it seems that God is being portrayed as a community, as a trinity. Now, I'd like to spend a minute talking about this word biblical, 
doctrine of the Trinity, Bruner says, is not biblical. Uh, we are Baptists, and so we want to be biblical, right? <laughs> we want our lives and our positions to be, to be biblical, to be inspired by the vision of Scripture. I think we can agree on that. Sometimes, especially in theological discourse, when we ask, is it biblical, what we're asking is, can we find verses or statements in Scripture to use as evidence for our position? And you'll see sometimes a statement, and in parentheses, a bunch of verse references, and that's not always bad. We have that in our statement of faith, in our uh, Constitution, but sometimes that that fosters a habit of reading Scripture that, that picks out chunks as morsels of evidence. I think, though, that this method of approaching and encountering Scripture, it misuses and it actually dishonors the Bible. Because it often ignores its distinct literary shape. And instead, it kind of dissects it. It analyzes it. We impose upon Scripture uh, a framework that's foreign to the text itself, and that's actually harmful, I think, to the text itself. One way to think about this is to imagine a flower. It's a good time to do that in the spring. Imagine an, an orchid or a, a dahlia or a peony or something just breathtakingly beautiful. And imagine you have two different people who want to encounter the flower, learn more about the flower. And please bear with me, I don't want to vilify one category of person over the other, but say you have a botanist who's trained in the techniques, the scientific techniques of botany, how to learn more about plants through botany, and they see this flower, and they want to learn more about it. And so they, they have a a lab bag, and they cut the flower, or they pull the flower up, and they bring it back to the lab indoors. And they have instruments, they have microscopes, they have various tests they can run, and they're taking notes and learning a lot about the flower. But at the end of the process, the flower is removed from its environment, and the flower is, is dead. That's one approach. On the other hand, let's say you have an artist, a visual artist, and the person sees the flower and sets up an easel and has some paint, just on hand, I guess, um, and really breathes in the life of the flower. Doesn't touch it, doesn't pull it out, doesn't cut it, paints it, does not learn the types of things the botanist learns about the flower, no way, but allows the flower to set the terms of engagement and produces a rendition of the flower that is affective, it touches the emotions, it's, it's beautiful, it's art. Two approaches. Sometimes, friends, I feel like when we approach the Scripture, it's like we are approaching a flower and we're cutting it up. We come to it and we don't observe and appreciate the distinct literary genre in which it's written, the fact that it needs to be observed as a whole unit, a whole gospel, a whole letter, a whole unit of meaning, 
And we, we dissect it and we dismember it. And things are learned sometimes, yes, but I wonder what this habit does in us. And I see this on display in conversations about the Trinity. Scripture, I think it's helpful to remember, is a, a series of reflections upon one's experience of God. Something that is inarticulable. You can't put it into words. You can think of Scripture as, as an anthology of testimonials from various periods, various languages even, various genres, various persons, all testifying, bearing witness to their experience of God. But friends, I think that throughout all these diverse testimonies, you can see a thread stretching through. You can see a thread, a pattern that suggests that the God of whom Scripture speaks exists as Trinity. Trinity. Now, like we did in our class session last year, I'd like to show you just a few pieces of visual art because, friends, the Trinity has been the subject of artistic representation for so many years. And of all the symbols in the Christian tradition that's been rendered by artists, the Trinity is probably the most prominent. So up on the screen, I'm going to show you just three examples of images uh, crafted to express in some way the Trinity and how the scriptures um, describe it. This first one comes from the 13th century. It's from northwestern Germany, what they would call uh, the Westphalian region. And it's an altarpiece. So this would be placed at the the front of a, a church, more perhaps ornate and traditional than, than this one. You could call it the mercy seat. Oh, the light off is a great idea. And there's three panels. And don't be confused. The uh, panels on either side, uh, the woman there is thought to be the Virgin Mary standing by the cross and the other John the Baptist. But as you can see in the middle, you have the Son of God, Jesus, on the cross. You have God the Father seated upon a very regal throne, but you can see that his hands, he's holding the cross. And even the cross on the bottom, I don't know if you can see, but it's growing up out of soil, out of the earth, to show the humanity of Jesus. And in between Jesus and the Father is a dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit, connecting Father and Son. This comes from Russia in the 1400s. This would have been an icon used to facilitate worship. It's a bit different than the last one. And so instead of the cross, you have the Son of God, Jesus, as a child seated upon the lap of the Father. And what they're sitting on is a kind of throne, but it's more of a plush reading chair with a footstool. They're wearing soft clothing. And the Son is holding a dove almost like a pet, but you can see they're all haloed. They're all on the same line of vision, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is probably the most famous work of art uh, depicting the Trinity. This is a Russian artist, Andrea Rublev, in the 1400s again. This is called The Hospitality of Abraham. 
We'll get into Genesis next week, and I don't know if we'll actually read this passage, but there's a text in Genesis where uh, God appears to Abraham in the form of three travelers, and so that could be a text that you could adduce um, in discussions of the Trinity. What's striking here is they're at table eating together. They're all about the same height, wearing similar but different colored clothing, but they're all bent toward the other. See that no single person in the Trinity is is inwardly focused. They're bending toward attending to the other, sharing a meal together as a group. So friends, as I look at pieces of art like this, and there's many others, and as I think about Scripture, the reflections in Scripture as a whole, I feel a kind of correspondence, a kind of fit. The concept of the Trinity seems to explain, helpfully, the many passages and stories and and phrases in Scripture which suggest, in a blurry way, divine community. And so at this point, what I'd like to do is look at the two passages that we read and to especially examine what they have to say, potentially, about the Trinity. So let's start with Matthew 28. You can open it up before you. Uh, we'll be looking at a few of the verses, albeit briefly. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20 is what I said is called the Great Commission, which ends the Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus is appearing one last time to his disciples before ascending to heaven and is charging them with something, giving them a task, a mission. And Jesus says in verse 18 that all authority has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going, as you're traveling, going about your life, be in the business of making disciples. Make that your priority. Go, therefore, and make disciples, not only of Jews, of the house of Israel, but of all nations. How do we do this, Jesus? What is our method? How ought we to do this once you are gone? Is baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Trinity here seems to surface in verse 19. Mention of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Matthew's gospel is not a systematic theology. It's not a statement of faith for a church or a, a Christian college. It is a charge to believers, to make disciples. It's missional. The Trinity as a concept is deployed in service of mission here. It it names the God in, in whose identity we are to make disciples. Existing in the Roman Empire with many gods, and thinking about the Hebrew Scriptures with the God of Israel... And now Jesus as God, there's need for clarity as the disciples go about this mission without a New Testament. We have the luxury of our Old and New Testament, and without Jesus, without the bodily presence of Jesus. Jesus says, this is the God in whose name you are to make disciples, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
There's a prominent theologian who recently passed, Robert Jensen, a Lutheran theologian, and he writes a lot about the Trinity and the naming of God. He connects the two. And in, in our class last year, we talked about Jensen, um, and I think his insights are really helpful here in Matthew 28. So th- these are some things that he says. Jensen writes that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that formula can almost be thought of as a proper name, as a shorthand way of identifying which God we're talking about, right? Make disciples of all nations, okay? Immerse people literally in water and, and, and cause a total life shift based on the personality, the mission, the values of a God, but which God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He also says that the Trinity can be seen as a summary of the story of God's dealings with Israel and the church. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a proper name, but also ought to remind you of the ways in which God, Yahweh, was faithful to his people Israel in freeing them from captivity in Egypt, in Babylon, how God was faithful in providing for us hope in the person of Jesus, and how even when Jesus ascends, God is faithful enough to provide us with a comforter, a counselor, the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit isn't just what you see on a name tag, but it's also a narrative. It's, it's a hyperlink to this story of God's dealings with creation, with Israel, and with the church. Jensen says that the Trinity identifies and names the Christian God and and names this God in a manner that is consistent with the biblical witness. I think this is so helpful. In the Great Commission, the, the Trinity isn't meant to be dissected theologically, understood philosophically, nothing like that. It's meant to indicate for us as we set out which, which God we are to build a kingdom for and with. It's to identify clearly as Jesus ascends whose mission we are part of, and that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jumping now to 2 Corinthians, a very different document. We have Paul's letter, occasional letter, to a church that was in crisis. After Paul established the church at Corinth and then left, immediately there were questions about his authority and leadership abilities, and there were divisions following different people. There were divisions over various issues, whether to eat certain foods, etc. And so 2 Corinthians largely encourages the church at Corinth to be united, to be at peace. And so we have, at the end of 2 Corinthians, language of restoration, comfort, agreement, peace, love. And in this benediction of sorts, Paul concludes with verse 14. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Friends, here the Trinity which is surfacing a bit, doesn't specify the the name of the God whose kingdom we are to build like it does in Matthew. It seems that the Trinity here holds up 
an example. Think about the, the hospitality of Abraham, the Trinity seated at table in harmony and unity and peace. It's, it's presented as an example to the Corinthians as to how they are to live God-shaped lives as Christians. I still don't think it's meant to be plumbed theologically and, and dissected and analyzed, but it's meant to present us with a model to pattern our lives after. This relates to the writings of another Lutheran theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who talks about the social trinity. And we talked about him in that class, and some of his insights are really helpful. He says that Christians should not imagine God as an individual person which has three aspects or modes of being. Modes, that's actually a heresy in the early church called modalism, where there's one God and at different times he appears in different ways. God, rather, is to be thought of, he says, as a collective, as a society, bound by mutual love and self-giving. A term started to crop up in the 6th century called perichoresis, which means something like mutual interpenetration. And he writes about this idea and says that the unity of God is the unity of persons in relationship. The Trinity allows the, the individuality of each person, but insists that each person shares in the life of the others. Think about humus beings, dependents. Moltmann himself writes that the triune God is reflected, then, reflected only in a united and uniting community of Christians, in which people have everything in common and share everything with one another except their personal qualities. Social trinity. I think these writers are helpful because they draw out the, the distinctive emphasis in 2 Corinthians and in, in Matthew. And perhaps as you find places in Scripture that seem to gesture toward the Trinity, you could draw out different aspects that are helpful for the Christian life. The fact is, though, friends, that theologians formulated the concept of the Trinity in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century. And they, they formulated this concept, I think, to name the God Christians worship and to sketch a pattern for a God-shaped Christian life. When we talk about the Trinity, then, I don't think we ought to imagine that we're, we're finally, fully, comprehensively understanding what God is truly like in His essence. We can't do that. But we are describing God in a way that is, I think, faithful to Scripture and that helps us accomplish His mission for us here on earth. The Trinity as a concept, then, it does work for us. It was crafted, formulated over time, yes, but, but to explain what was always there in the testimony of believers. It provides a framework in which we're to understand God's identity as we go about our work of mission, and it provides a model to shape 
our existence as we seek to live God-shaped lives today. As you reflect then on the Trinity as a concept today and this week, I encourage you to assume the posture of the artist from before. Like a flower, the Trinity is not something to be dissected or dismembered or controlled. It's meant rather to be observed, encountered, and adored, to affect us on its terms, not ours, and to leave us perhaps more confused, but more enthralled by and in love with our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through Scripture, through nature, through the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we carry out our mission as a church, we could reveal some of your nature to the world, that we could be a light for you. Be with us as we sit at table together, trying to pattern our lives after your life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.